For those of you that are new with us, welcome. My name is Jordan. I am one of the ministers here at Holy Trinity. And if we have not met, please come introduce yourself to me afterwards. I'd love to just have a conversation amidst my children, delightfully interrupting. Today is the third Sunday of Epiphany. Epiphany is about seven Sundays in total. And it's a season that begins with the baptism of Jesus and it ends with the transfiguration of Jesus. In other words, the church's worship during the season is framed by the only two times in the gospel where we hear God speaking directly from heaven about his son. Jesus' baptism, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. In Jesus' transfiguration, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And so Epiphany is the season where Jesus is revealed to us, and not just by anybody, but by God the Father himself. We hear and we are invited to share God's perspective and his passion for his son. I love the way that Frederick Dale Bruner, that's a great name, by the way, put it. He said, the one fact that God the Father wants believers to know above all other facts in life is how much we have in Jesus. And that's what Epiphany is about. And this morning in particular, as Trevecca already flagged for us, we are invited in our gospel reading to contemplate the Lord's first sermon and the calling of the first disciples. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's a one-sentence sermon. Some of you wish for that right now. (laughs) Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men and women, the first disciples. Everything in our gospel reading revolves around that good news that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And as I was meditating on this week, there were kind of three questions that came to my mind. The first was a question of context. Like, where does Jesus announce that the kingdom of heaven has come and is present? And then a question of content. What is the quality or the character of this kingdom that Jesus is talking about? And then a question of calling. How does Jesus invite us to respond to the presence of the kingdom? So first, the the context question, like where is this kingdom showing up? And notice Matthew, as always, pays marvelous attention to the details of location and of place in his gospel. He makes a concerted effort to remind his readers of the precise geographical location of Jesus when things happen. So notice verses 12 through 16. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, this is John the Baptist, He withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Notice how much geography we get in these first verses. Geography matters to Matthew, and it matters to Jesus. You can actually map the Gospel of Matthew kind of based on where Jesus is living and where he's doing his ministry. In the early kind of four chapters, Jesus is honed in and focused in Nazareth in his early life. And then here we see a hinge where he focuses his ministry, public ministry, in Galilee, 
particularly Capernaum. And then you see a hinge later around chapter 16 where he starts focusing his ministry on the journey towards Jerusalem. Different phases of Jesus' ministry. And here is one of those hinging points. It's a hinge from the ministry of John the Baptist, the one who is preparing for the Lord, to the ministry of the Lord himself. From Nazareth to Galilee, and more specifically, Capernaum. Now, until about two decades ago, archaeologists had not been able to locate and unearth where Capernaum actually was. And so all we knew was just that it was in Galilee, and we knew some stuff about Galilee in particular. And Galilee was a pretty dynamic place, we know. One of the best scholars on this is a guy named William Barclay, and he's got a bunch of wonderful things about Galilee. And he says it was a densely populated place, lots of towns, And so Jesus chooses to begin his work in an area that's teeming with people. It was one of the most fertile regions in Palestine, meaning it had a rich economy, a booming economy. It was surrounded by Gentiles, a Jewish area surrounded by Gentiles. So it meant that the population of Galilee was often more mixed. It was ethnically and racially diverse. And the traffic of the world passed through Galilee. There were some major trade routes from north and south and east-west that would come through Galilee in particular. And so what this meant is that you had a constant influx of new ideas. It was a place that was open to new ideas. Now, do you know anywhere like this? (laughs) Densely populated, big booming economy, ethnically and racially diverse, constantly open to new ideas. That's where Jesus chooses to begin his kingdom ministry. Luckily, a couple decades ago, archaeologists were actually able to locate and unearth where Capernaum was by the Sea of Galilee. I've never personally been there myself. Maybe some of you have had that opportunity. But I've heard Eugene Peterson tell the the story of the time when he was able actually to visit the archaeological site, um, which is supposed to be quite pristine. And he said as he was walking through this kind of one-road town near the sea that's about six blocks long, he said there was one thing that showed up more than anything else in the archaeological dig, and that was coins and fishhooks. I guess two things. Everywhere, coins and fishhooks. People's houses, in the streets, in the marketplaces, coins and fishhooks. See, Capernaum was a marketplace. It was a place of money. It was a place of trade. It was a place of commerce. It was a place of industry. Jesus specifically chooses to leave Nazareth and go to Capernaum, the marketplace, when he wants to start announcing that the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, why is this important? Why spend so much time caring about geography and economy? Because geography and economy continue to speak to us about the wonder of the Incarnation. I had a theology professor at St. Andrews. His name was Christoph Schwobel, great German name with an umlaut. He said that interesting thing in one of our seminars. He said one of the biggest threats to the church in the West today is not so much militant atheism, not so much just belief that God doesn't exist, but maybe it's practical atheism. Maybe it's living as if God is irrelevant and unconnected and not present to the day-to-day realities of our daily lives, to vocation, to work, to economy. 
See, what we have here is Jesus right in the midst of it all, choosing to unfold his kingdom ministry, choosing to unpack his kingdom message, choosing to unleash his kingdom power right in the midst of coins and fishhooks. What we discover once again, and you'll hear me say this lots of times, you've already heard me say it before, is that there is no sacred and secular divide in Jesus' view of the world. A lot of people talk about our world as being a pluralistic world, but we may be able to call it a fragmented world, where we tend to divide and compartmentalize our lives into different segments and sections, maybe even different days of the week, and we identify God as being involved with some, but not others. But what Jesus is doing is here is he's just exploding that. And he's, ex- he's claiming the marketplace as a holy place where his kingdom is going to break in. Money and commerce are just as much matters of discipleship as our prayer and forgiveness. Guess what I'm trying to say, my dear brothers and sisters, is that what you do on Monday through Friday matters to Jesus just as much as what you do on Sunday. Jesus honors you and the dignity of your work with his sacred presence. Where you work is holy ground. That construction site or that corporate office or that meeting room or that lecture hall or that therapy room is holy ground. Jesus chooses to go there to proclaim the kingdom. I don't know if you've ever spent any time in the Book of Common Prayer But at the end, there's these wonderful little services for families, which are marvelous little services. They're about one or two pages, and they're morning and evening. And there's a wonderful little prayer for families in it. It goes like this. Merciful Savior, who did love Martha and Mary and Lazarus, hallowing their home with thy sacred presence. Bless our home, we ask you. Let your presence rest among us. Help us to love one another. It's a prayer about family, but I think it could just as easily be a prayer for the marketplace. Merciful Savior, who did move to Capernaum to live amongst the coins and the fish hooks, hallowing the marketplace with your sacred presence. Bless, we beseech you, our marketplaces that your love may rest upon us. See, the context of Jesus' work is the marketplace. But what is its content? What is the quality and what is the character of this kingdom that Jesus is saying has come oh so very near? Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's a little book by a man named uh, Mortimer Arius. I'm sorry, but the names of the people I'm talking about today are just incredible. <laughs> it's, it's called Announcing the Reign of God. I recommend it to you. It's a really great book by a man who spent a lot of time in Latin America teaching and experiencing what it looked like when God's kingdom broke into the world. And he, in a, in a chapter called The Presence of the Kingdom, kind of highlights, he notes, five qualities of Jesus' kingdom and what it looks like when it's present. There's a lot more than this, but these are wonderful ones. The first is that it's a kingdom of grace, meaning it's gift. It's pure gift. We cannot create it. We can only enter into it. 
We cannot initiate it, we can only receive it. It's pure gift. I think that's why the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus starts with, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit are those who have nothing. They cannot presume anything and they cannot assume anything. The kingdom belongs to those who do not have what it takes and they know it, they're poor in spirit. And it comes as pure gift. Mortimer says this, He says, Jesus meant that the kingdom cannot be ensured by faithfully observing rites and ceremonies in the temple as the priests and Sadducees claimed. The kingdom cannot be earned by strictly observing the law and its rabbinic interpretations as the Pharisees claimed. The kingdom cannot be secured by fleeing from the world and living a secluded life of purity in the wilderness as the Essenes claimed. And the kingdom cannot be conquered by the piercing swords of violent rebellion against political authorities, as the zealots claimed. The kingdom of God comes as grace. It comes from above, and it has to be received as gift. And the only way it can be lost, he says, is by presumption. It's a kingdom of grace. But it's also a kingdom of forgiveness. Think about the friends who lower their paralytic friend down through the roof. All this digging and dust and dirt flying everywhere as Jesus is teaching the crowds and he comes down. Jesus takes one good look at him and says, son, your sins are forgiven. It's not exactly what they expected. It's not at the temple. There's no sacrifice. And I'm sure they probably wanted him to be healed. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. A woman is caught in adultery and she's dragged before before the religious leaders of the day. And Jesus says, let you who is without sin throw the first stone. Then he kneels down and draws on the ground as one by one the religious leaders walk away and drop their stones. And then Jesus stands up and looks the woman in the eye and asks, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. It's a kingdom of forgiveness. It's a kingdom of life, too. Jesus came to restore life. He touches people's eyes. He touches their ears. He touches their bodies, and they come to life again. They are healed. Jesus promises life. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, you will know life. Jesus comes to celebrate life. He shows up at the wedding in Cana. And it's a kingdom of community. Jesus comes to restore community. Notice how central meals are to the ministry of Jesus. This is something I've been reflecting upon in our life together a little bit. Every time I've had a meal with one of you, where we've gathered together and we've broken bread, or last time it was eating chili and cornbread around the table, there's something special that happens when you break a meal with somebody that you normally wouldn't break a meal with. And it was so central to the ministry of Jesus is restoring people to the sense of belonging and community under his reign, in his kingdom, under his goodness. That everybody, the socially outcast and the religiously marginalized and the politically compromised and the sexually scandalized, everybody is welcome to this table. See, in the ancient world, table was a place of dividing lines. 
who you ate with, they were your friends, and they were who you associated with. So you got to make sure you only eat with particular groups of people, the sorts of people you want to be seen with and associated with. And so for Jesus to gather all people around his table is such a radical act of restoration. It's such a radical act of hospitality. It's a kingdom of community. So we have this community, and we have this life, and we have this forgiveness, and we have this radical graciousness. And this, all of this we see in the Old Testament is an expectation of what it will look like when the kingdom comes. But one of the most marvelous qualities, and maybe the most marvelous quality of Jesus' proclamation is that he says the kingdom of God is at hand, or it has drawn near. Meaning this is not some distant reality. This isn't some wish dream. I am here, and in my person, in my words, in my responses to people, in my deeds, in my touch, that kingdom is now here. Some scholars have called this the new element in Jesus' message. It's not what the kingdom of God's going to be like necessarily, but it's the fact that it is now here. It's arrived. The future is crashing into the present right now. Heaven is invading earth right now. And according to Jesus, this is just a fact. It's not a question. It's not a contingent reality. It's not something based on human feelings or experience or choices. It's not based on cultural context or political powers. The presence of the kingdom is based on Jesus' person and work, and it's here. One of the ways that we know it's here is that we start to see signs of the realities we just spoke of bubbling up in our lives, in our relationships, in our homes, in our churches, in our workplaces. Gifts, spontaneous acts of kindness, forgiveness, forgiveness, restoration and celebration of life. Open tables where all are welcome. May God bless us with these things, brothers and sisters. I've seen so much of it in our life together already. And, but man, would we pray for more of it? And when this kingdom comes, how is it that Jesus calls us and invites us and asks us to respond to him? First of all, he asks us to repent and then he asks us to follow. Repent based on the fact that the kingdom is here. Notice, notice, it's not repent because you are so sinful. I mean, that would be true. And it kind of is an assumption that, that in our sinful condition, human lives are out of sync with the kingdom of God. And so we need to turn around and we need to be realigned with God and his purposes in the world. Yet that's not the reason Jesus gives. He says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repentance is a response to profoundly good news. Command to repent flows out of the fact that we find ourselves in the presence of the king and in a totally new situation. The old world and the old order is starting to pass away as Jesus establishes a new world and a new order. I remember experiencing this just a little bit in a conversation with my dad when I was 16 years old. It was the day after Christmas, so... Boxing Day, for those of you that use that terminology. I was 16. My dad sat me down. 
for a conversation, which didn't happen a whole lot. <laughs> so I knew something was up. And he just said one line to me. He just said, Jordan, I know how you're living your life. And I want you to know that God wants much more for your life. It was just one sentence. And for some reason, the Holy Spirit used those words to bring profound conviction into my life. And just a flood of things came to mind that I needed to repent of and I needed to turn from. But what was so amazing to me is just the way my, God, my dad just acknowledged the reality of how I was living and then just positively said, God has so much more than that. That's a kingdom message. And it brought about repentance. To repent is literally to change your mind. It's to change directions or to use a metaphor that really hits home, it's to make a U-turn. In Canada, you're not allowed to make U-turns, it's illegal, so. <laughs> to repent is to line yourself with the kingdom. It's not just a warm, fuzzy feeling, it's not just an intention, it's a relational action. So Mortimer says this, he says, repentance means more than merely an inner, inner attitude. It means a change of mind, a change of actions and relationships, a total reorientation of life towards the kingdom of God. See, repentance is not merely an internal reality. It, trust me, it cuts to the core. <laughs> it goes all the way to the roots of our hearts and our affections and our feelings. Yet repentance is more than just an inner reality. Repentance in the Bible is when that inner reality expresses itself in actions and relationships externally. And so that's what Jesus is calling us to. He's saying, repent, do U-turn, change your mind, align your lives with the kingdom of God. And then he says, follow, become my apprentice. In the ancient Jewish world, students would attach themselves to a rabbi and follow the rabbi around literally everywhere. <laughs> and it was often the case in the ancient world that a rabbi would actually arrange for students to be able to live in some sort of quarters with them or to be somewhat near them so that they would have as much life-on-life -life contact as possible. The idea was that in order to become like the rabbi, a student needed not only to listen to the rabbi's teaching, but needed to watch the rabbi's life, needed to see how the rabbi had conversations with people, needed to notice how the rabbi responded to particular situations, needed to watch how the rabbi interacted with his family. One needed to learn how to think and feel and relate and respond and inhabit the world as the rabbi does. That's what the call to follow me is about. It's not just kind of this rote obedience thing, although obedience is a part of it. It's more an invitation to a way of doing life with another person under their wisdom and their care and guidance, a way of inhabiting the world that seeks to inhabit the world as that person inhabits the world. And notice that this call to discipleship or this call to apprenticeship or this call to following is predicated upon a great promise. So the command to repent was predicated upon great news. The kingdom is at hand. And the, the command to follow me is predicated upon a great promise. I will make you fishers of men and women. Hear that, brothers and sisters. I think often this is heard as this sort of command, go be fishers. But Jesus is promising, I will make you this. That's good news. 
See, following Jesus is not fear-given, it's driven, it's not guilt-driven, it's not shame-driven, it's not anxiety-driven. It's promise-driven. I won't say purpose-driven. <laughs> Just listen, but yeah. <laughs> Although it is that. <laughs> it's it's promise-driven. And what Jesus is promising is that he will make us fishers of men and women. Now, this is a really interesting thing. It seems kind of like a weird thing to promise people. I mean, I guess they were fishermen, his original disciples he's calling. But I think there's something deeper going on here. There's, there's only like one place in the prophets that I, I'm aware of. If you're aware of another place, let me know. Where this image of fishing, a fisherman really shows up. And it's in Jeremiah chapter 16, verse 16. The context is that God's people are scattered in foreign nations. They're experiencing famine, the tyranny of foreign leaders, and death. The deterioration of human life as God has intended it for his people. And God tells his people, he says, look, I'm going to restore you. I'm going to come after you. I'm going to seek you. I'm going to bring you back. And you're going to know my power. You're going to know my might. You're going to know my salvation. You are going to know my name. And then he says, verse 16, Behold, I am sending for many fishers, declares the Lord, and they shall catch them, my people. So it's this image of God sending for fishermen and women in this ministry of restoration. In a sense, Jesus is promising that those who follow him, he will make them into agents of restoration, of his restoration in the world. And I find this a little marvelous. (laughs) Jesus entrusts fragile and fickle human beings like me and you with a ministry of restoration. I mean, just think of Peter in John chapter 21. Jesus calling him back to the fire, and I talked about this months ago, that charcoal fire, which is the exact place that John says that Peter denied Jesus three times after saying he would never do such a thing. And Jesus calls him back to that fire, offers him a meal of hospitality and friendship and restoration, and then three times says, do you love me? Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I do. Feed my sheep. And I remember talking about this with somebody because I was kind of feeling the responsibility of that commissioning that I was given in my ordination to be a priest. Once again, when I was heading towards the induction service to be your rector. (laughs) And I was feeling the responsibility of that commissioning as a heavy responsibility. And I forget who it is now. For some reason, my memory skips me. But I was talking to an older minister. and And he said to me, he said, Yes, it's a responsibility and it's a commissioning, but do you realize how much trust it is to you? He says, Jesus entrusts Peter with care for his sheep. He entrusts him with this ministry of restoration that comes on the heels of his own restoration. Isn't it a marvelous thing that Jesus would entrust us with this work? I remember that was big for me because it didn't take away the responsibility, but it just shifted it as well that Jesus entrusts us with this work of fishing, this work of restoration, this work of being about his kingdom in the world. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men and women. To raise your son and daughter is to be entrusted with the work of the kingdom. 
To care for an ailing father or mother or in-law is to be entrusted with the work of the kingdom. To listen to a grieving friend is to be entrusted with the work of the kingdom. To forgive a spouse, to befriend an orphan, to take in a widow is to be entrusted with the kingdom. To talk politics or economics or analytics with somebody is to be entrusted with the work of the kingdom. To teach a student, to counsel a client, to serve a patient is to be entrusted with the work of the kingdom. To craft emails and to answer phones and to serve coffee and to build planter boxes as we did yesterday is to be entrusted with the work of the kingdom. Every relationship, every detail of life, every joy and every sorrow is entrusted to us by our Lord as a part of his kingdom work. May the Lord give us strength to follow. May he give us joy in our repentance. May we know the grace and the forgiveness and the life and the community that comes when the kingdom of God is at hand.